Well, we are in week three of a five-week series called Scary Love, and we are looking at the idea of love being self-sacrificing today. And we're going to be, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, and today I'm going to do something different where I read from two different translations just to, just to remind or share that with you so that you're not confused. But let me just open up this idea of self-sacrifice with a story from World War II. A, uh, a Franciscan monk, a Franciscan friar from Poland named Maximilian Kolbe was a man who displayed this type of self-sacrifice. In World War II, his church, they held refugees and they held Jewish refugees specifically. They cared to take care of these folks who were being annihilated and, and taken into prison and captivity. And so they would hide them in their church. Well, eventually, the German army discovered this church. They discovered and found all of the Jewish refugees in their church. And so they took everyone, all of the refugees, including the friar as well, into Auschwitz. And they took them to the worst camp that you could think of. And here in Auschwitz, the friar stood. And there was one day where someone tried to escape And in Auschwitz, that was unacceptable. And so they said, we're going to take 10 men and we're going to put them into starvation. We're going to take them out and put them into a room where we won't feed them. We won't take care of them. We'll allow the rats and the fleas to do the job. And they will all die of starvation. Because every time anyone tries to leave, this is the punishment that will happen. Well, all of the men were chosen, and the tenth man was chosen, and he screamed, No, I have children. Please, please don't kill me. Please don't put me there. And the friar said, I'll take his spot. Let me starve instead. They said, Okay, we'll take you instead. And they put Friar Colby in with these folks who were going to be starved to death. And he would pray with them every night. And all day long, he spent time ministering to these folks, even though he himself was dying of starvation as well. And the Lord upheld him, and he was the last one to die. And he only died because they had to put the liquid inside his veins to kill him. You see, that story is one that is remarkable. And you think about this man who was so dedicated to Jesus that he was willing to sacrifice himself for strangers, that he would go to the, the, the concentration camp for strangers, that he would take the place of another who was a stranger to him simply because he loved these people. This type of love is difficult to find in our world, if not impossible, outside of Jesus Christ. The love we offer is often lackluster, Due to our selfish entitlement. He decided that he was not entitled to safety. Friar Colby decided that he was not even entitled to life. He sacrificed himself. And in our Christian lives, when we say, why don't I live that way? Much of it can be into the idea of our selfish entitlement. Because we desire things for ourselves, we feel as if we are entitled, but we're called to something different. David Benner says, to truly receive love, 
to become love as we are called to, we must be prepared to surrender the keys to the kingdom of self. Now, surrendering the keys to the kingdom of self is not an easy task. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest things that you and I have to do as disciples of Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, we will see that not only are we to sacrifice the kingdom of self for the sake of Christ to fill us, for the sake of Christ to strengthen us, but we're also to sacrifice the kingdom of self for one another. So we must ask the question again as we will this entire series. Why is true love scary and how do we practice it? Why is true love scary and how do we practice it? We're going to now turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And we'll read the ESV first and then we'll read the NIV. Because translators, as they look at the Greek, the Greek is so rich The Greek is so deep that the words can have different meanings. They can have a strengthening of meanings. And so different translators, they take the words and they translate them differently. That doesn't mean that they're taking liberties with the Bible. Uh, most, Most translations don't take liberties with the Bible, the original Greek. But they are just utilizing the different definitions in different places. And so I want us to look at both translations. First, from the ESV, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now from the NIV, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Both translations sound very similar, obviously, but they utilize different wording that we will use for today. Powerful, powerful words about love. Difficult very difficult words about love. Now, I want to give us a little bit of a refresher on background. Remember, Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth where they had all kinds of issues where they were infighting and they were saying, I'm better and you're worse. My gift is better, your gift is worse. My teacher's better, your teacher's worse. And there was all kinds of comparing. There was all kinds of bitterness and anger and resentfulness that was going on in the church because they're saying, I'm better. They were walking in this path of arrogance and they were consistently putting down their brother and sister. 
And so Paul talks about love smashed in between the spiritual gifts because the spiritual gifts were going on at the church and he was encouraging them, but they were misplacing their hope in just the gifts and not the Lord. And they were hindering one another. They were not utilizing the spiritual gifts as they were intended to edify each other. And so he shares with them the more excellent way, as he calls it, the way of love. And he says in order to really have an eternal impact, in order for these gifts to mean anything, you must walk in the way of love. And this is not a marital ballad. Right? I think we always have this idea that 1 Corinthians 13 is only for spouses. And even then it's really difficult to live this out. But this is for the body of believers. It was a message to the church that we are to treat one another in this way. We are to love one another in this way. And that adds a whole other layer. Because people can be really frustrating. People can be really hard to love. Our spouse can be really hard to love. We can be hard to love because we drive our spouse crazy. God bless Hillary for her patience. But we need to understand the context of where we are. And you see what Paul is trying to get at is that love makes others more valuable and more important. And that love is scary. Love that makes others more valuable and more important is scary. He's saying, listen, you guys have been living in selfishness. You've been walking in the kingdom of self but you need to make others more important. If you are to truly love as God calls you to love, others have to be more important than yourself. And so we see the first idea that he gives in this specific passage. We're focusing on short amount of what we're looking at today. We're looking at 13, 4, and 5. Agape love doesn't highlight self. Agape love does not highlight self. He says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. But when we feel entitled, we want to highlight ourselves. You see, the Corinthians were saying, my gift is better. I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to show you that I'm entitled to a greater, deeper gift from God than you are, which makes me a better believer, which makes God love me more. I'm entitled to more love because I'm better than you are. I'm entitled to more love because my gift is greater than yours. You see, but if you are to truly love someone, entitlement must die in your life. If we are to truly walk in humility and love one another with humble hearts, we need to not elevate ourselves but seek to elevate one another. Where we bless one another and say, wow, the gift that God has given you is remarkable. The gift that God has given you is powerful. The gift that God has given you, you need to use. And we need to open up the doors for you to utilize that gift. Envy and boastfulness, they come from the same mother. And the mother is arrogant. The mother is pride. I love what St. Augustine said where he said, pride is pregnant with all the other sins. Pride and this idea of entitlement, they cause us to go down to these other sins, thinking that we deserve to live in the flesh, thinking that we deserve to be better, thinking that we deserve more love from God. 
But no matter what you do or no matter what you've done, God will never love you more and God will never love you less. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We come before the Lord with nothing, each and every one of us. And we are called to agape love for one another where we put ourselves on a lower space and we put one another in a higher space. Entitlement says I deserve this or that or it declares I have such and such and I am better because of it. See, the Greek word for boast means a braggart and a windbag. (laughs) I love that definition, windbag. He's saying if you're going to be boastful in the church, you're nothing but a windbag. You're nothing but a braggart. You're, You're not loving. You're not even kind. You're not taking care of your fellow man. And your gift, he would say earlier on as we read, is meaningless. Without love... Your gifts are meaningless. And so if you're lifting yourself up and you're lauding yourself, the gift is not doing anything for you. So stop living for yourself. He's saying love is not about ourselves, but about others. Love is not about us, but about others, where we care for others, where we sacrifice ourselves for others, where we say, you know what, Mark Hank is more important than I am, and so I'm going to lift him up, I'm going to pray for him, I'm going to care for him, I'm going to love him, or whoever it may be. We lift one another up. And we also see that agape love does not compare, it complements Agape love does not compare, it compliments. We're not trying to compare ourselves with one another where we say, you know what, I have the gift of teaching and you have the gift of such and such. And I, I'm better because in comparison, I'm better. But even when our, when, in our lives, you know what, I, I don't sin as much as my brother or my sister does, so I'm better. I'm better than that person. And we walk in this religiosity, this pharisaical way where we look at others and we judge them for who they are or what they do, who they vote for, if they're smoking, if they're drinking with tattoos or earrings, whatever it may be. We look at them and say, I'm better because we're comparing ourselves to them and see we are called to complement one another, not compare. We're, We're called not to look at what other people have or don't have and compare. We might even look at someone and say, wow, I'm really jealous of their gift. They're really being used by God. What am I doing? What do I have? And so we either walk in arrogance or we walk in depression. Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. I love that. I love that. And I, I, you've probably heard me say it before. It is something that has just gone deeply into my heart and into my life. Comparison is the thief of joy. I have found it true in my life. When I compare myself to others, my joy lessens. And my arrogance rises or my sadness at my loss or lack grows. We are not to be arrogant or puffed up either. That, that word arrogant or prideful, when it, it comes in the NIV, means puffed up. When we walk around with a big chest, we might walk into church and say, I'm the holiest of holies. Everybody needs to know. And we tell someone, you know, I prayed for seven hours yesterday. You prayed for seven minutes. <laughs> you got nothing on me. Now, you might not even say that out loud, but you walk in, walk through life with that puffed up chest. And he's saying, you know what, love is not proud. Love 
is not arrogant. And that's why he finishes this idea of envy and boastfulness with arrogance because arrogance has birthed these things. And he's saying we must be humble if we are to truly love. Love is also scary because agape is a love that does for rather than demands from. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. It does not push its agenda. It does not demand that you love or do something for. But it looks to say, how can I serve this person? When you see your brother or sister, you ask the question, not what can they do for me, but what can I do for them? And that's releasing the kingdom of self, isn't it? Because there are so many things that we want other people to do for us. There are so many things that we're hoping that someone will do for us. We don't walk in life saying, what can I do for others? We don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I serve my brother or sister today? How can I serve my spouse? How can I serve my kids? Many times it's, what can they do for me? When we look at our church or family, or real family for that matter, as simply a means of self-satisfaction, we neglect true love. Death to self is contrary to our culture, but it is important for true agape love. If we are to walk in this deep agape love, we must surrender the keys of the kingdom of self. And this is why love is scary, because love is scary when we live for others rather than for ourselves. Who's going to protect me? Who's going to care for me? Who's going to love me? But let me tell you, when you love others, they will also love you back. When you offer that love of self-sacrifice, you will see other people will follow suit in your life. But you don't sacrifice yourself in order to get other people to sacrifice themselves for you. See, it's kind of a catch-22. We purposely walk in life saying, even if that person never sacrifices themselves for me, I will consistently sacrifice myself for them. And you can see why this is important in marriage and why many counselors and many pastors utilize this passage in marriage. Because it is important that as a spouse, we wake up and say, how can I serve my spouse today? How can I serve my kids today. Simply put, to love is to sacrifice self. To love is to sacrifice self. And I don't know about you, but that really scares me. I like to compare myself often. I like to be served rather than serve. I like to be raised up and not put down. Sacrificing self is not an easy thing at all. And for someone to say, you know, here's how we're to love, and it's super simple, it's super easy, they're lying to you. <laughs> it's hard. It's difficult. But it's what we're called to, and that is why we need the Spirit of the living God within us. You simply cannot force sacrifice from love. You can't. You cannot divorce sacrifice 
from love. And that is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and to us. That if you're truly to love, if you truly know love, you will sacrifice yourself. In this entire series, we have said and will continue to say that God will not call us to something that He Himself has not done or is willing to do. And the ultimate picture of self-sacrificial love is Jesus dying for you. Is Jesus dying for me? Where the Bible tells us that He willingly stepped down, He willingly stepped into humanity, he willingly went to the cross for you and for me. That is self-sacrificial love. And Jesus even said, no greater love than this is when we lay down our life for our brother. That wasn't necessarily Jesus saying when there's a bus coming, you go and you take the bus for the other person. That's part of it. But he's saying that we willy, willingly surrender ourselves, where we willingly die to ourselves for one another. There is no greater love than that. And that is the love that we are called to. That is the scary love that we are to live out, not just in our families, but with our church family. The church needs people who love. The church needs you to allow the Spirit of God to take away the keys of love, of, of self, and give you the keys of love. I need that as well. I'm not exempt. Every time I preach, I want to remind you that I'm a human just like you, that I have sin in my life, that God is working out of me just like you, that I need to follow the passages of Scripture just like you. And guess what? It's just as hard for me as it is for you. Just because I have an education in theology, because I preach and I study the word of God to deliver it, doesn't mean that it's any easier. Love, self-sacrificial love is difficult. In our humanity, we don't want to die to ourselves. We need to care for one another above ourselves. When Hillary and I counsel um, people who are in marriage or premarital counseling, one of the things that we say is the best thing for you in marriage is to make sure that you got your spouse's back and to make sure that they have your back. Where you go into battle back to back, making sure that that person is safe, making sure that you're sacrificing yourself for your spouse. And when you do that, the, the enemy cannot attack your spouse as greatly as they could if their back was exposed. But too often in life and in marriage, we have a mirror to our back and we say, oh man, I'm going to get my own back. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to make sure that my agenda, my way, and my desires are happening in this marriage. But when you do that, you leave your spouse's back exposed. Because we might even demand, I'm looking out for my own back and I want you to look at my back as well. I want you to guard and protect me and I'm going to guard and protect myself. And we miss the fact that we're to guard and protect our spouse. And the same is true in our relationships with one another. That we have got to guard one another's back. We've got to care for one another more than we care for ourselves. Because when we don't, your sibling in Christ has ceased to be your companion. Or your wife or your husband has ceased to be your companion and they have become your competition or you're competing for yourself rather than competing 
for them. Jesus did this for you. He sacrificed himself for us. And he calls us to model him in everything. He calls us to model his life where the Spirit fills us and indwells us and gives us the ability to do it. Jesus said, it's good for me to go because the Spirit of God will come and will give you the capability to do all of which I have called you to do. But we cannot know love without first knowing God. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He said, you cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. You cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. Listen, our relationship with God is vital to our capability of giving over the kingdom of self. Our relationship with God is what infuses us with the ability to love one another. When we can say, God, I want you to take the kingdom of self away from me so that I can live for you, that's step one of loving one another. And then we ask God, you know what? I really need to love these people. I really need to love that person. Give me the capability. Give me the desire to love them the way that you love me and the way that I'm called to love. But you cannot do that if you're not loving God. You cannot do that if you're not surrendering to the Holy Spirit, saying it's not my agenda, it's not my desires. I don't want to lift myself up. I want to glorify Jesus by loving my brother or my sister. David Benner said, once we truly encounter perfect love and the kingdom plan to make this love the rule, not only of heaven but of earth, Surrender is less an act of volition than an impulse of love. He's saying when we come face to face with God, when we really understand the depths of his love for us, we will lovingly desire to do the same for others. I've noticed in my life when I stop loving others the way that I'm called to, it's because I've not really allowed the love of God to pour deeply into my heart. That I have forgotten the depths of what he's done. Many pastors say that we need to consistently speak the gospel into our lives, that we need to preach the gospel over and over and over again. And a huge part of the gospel is Christ's sacrifice for us, that he died on the cross, that he let his agenda go. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, this is going to be difficult, this is going to be hard. I know what's coming, but not my will, your will. We're to model Christ, to sacrifice ourselves. Once we truly experience that perfect love, or once we go back to experiencing that perfect love, we can't help but love one another. Consistently, Paul is reminding the Corinthians, love is not about you. That's a really hard word, right? I mean, we think of love as this emotional feeling, this fluttering in our hearts where we look at someone and we say, I really love that person. Look at what they did for me. Look at the sacrifice they have. I really love for them. I want more of that feeling. You see, love is not about you. Love is about sacrifice. Love is about loving others more than you love yourself. It is about looking at your brother and sister and saying, what can I do for them? Rather than demanding that they do something 
for me. Love is scary because we relinquish the keys to the kingdom of self, but love is also scary because agape love is good-tempered, not grumpy. <laughs> love is good-tempered, not grumpy. It says don't be easily angered, don't be irritable towards one another. Man, there are some people who just grind our gears, right? There's some people that when we're in their presence, we're like, oh, I just want to get away. Oh my gosh, they're going to talk about this thing again and they're going to bring it back up and I just don't want to talk about it. And we get grumpy. We get irritable. If we see that person, something inside of our heart changes and we get a little bit irritable. And we might get frustrated and we might start yelling at the people around us. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with that other person. But here, Paul is saying that love is not that way. It is not easily angered. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not grumpy. Love is good temper. And we have to ask the Holy Spirit, even though this person seems to get under my skin, help me to be good tempered to them. Help me to still desire to serve them. Even though they bring up the same thing over over and over again let me still have good temper with them let me still love them and seek to serve them and walk alongside them you see we have a choice to sacrifice ourselves, or we have a choice to feed our flesh love is feeding or is not feeding our flesh and not living in love is feeding our flesh choosing self-sacrifice is love Love is also scary because agape love does not keep score. The Greek word here for keeping score or having a record of wrongs is logazomai. And it means to determine by a mathematical process, essentially to keep score or to reckon the evil. So what he's saying is, you know, you've been mathematically putting down a process of holding things against one another. Literally, they pull out, he's saying, a scorecard, and they say, you know what, that person sinned against me today, that person said mean things, that person was arrogant, that person told me I was bad, and you just have this scorecard of sins that you hold against one another. And what he's saying to them is, put the scorecard away. Stop determining what that person has done against you with a mathematical process where you methodically look and then you compare. Again, love does not compare, but then you compare your sins against theirs. You compare their sin against you and your sin against them and you say, wow, they've done 10 sins against me. I've only done three. I'm a better disciple. <laughs> Man, I love better than they love. Man, I'm modeling Christ way better than they are. And when we hold these scorecards, we end up with resentment. Remember, in the, in the ESV, it says, love is not irritable or resentful. It's the same word for keeping score in the NIV. I like how the NIV says it because it's more of a visual. That Greek word is more of a visual when it says Do not, does not keep score. Because love does not keep score. This keeping score tends to strengthen bitterness, anger, and disappointment. And we might do this with our spouse as well. 
when we write these things down and we say, you know what, man, I'm such a better spouse. I'm way better. And we hold those things against one another. Keeping score creates resentment. We must be quick to forgive. We must be quick to love. I remember one pastor, uh, Pastor Rock at Allegheny Center Alliance Church, he talks about forgiveness this way. He says, forgiveness is remembering differently. Where you purposely choose to throw the score away. And say, so, you know what, that was a tough moment in our lives, but I've forgiven you and I remember that moment differently now because the Spirit has given me the ability to forgive you. Psalm 103.12 says this very thing. It assures us that our sin, that God does not hold our sins against us. When we confess and repent our sins, He throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. Or He says, I throw it behind my back. It's as if it didn't happen because I have forgiven you. I will not hold it against you. But often when we are in these places where we say, oh, I forgave so-and-so. But when something else happens, we're like, do you remember what you did 10 years ago when you talked bad about me? Yeah. Yeah, don't talk to me now. That, you did not forgive. Let me, let me just tell you, if you have a scorecard and you keep bringing up the same sin against you, you have not forgiven them. You haven't. And we might do this with our spouses or our sons or our daughters or our parents. And we might say, you know what, I remember what you said to me when I was 10. I forgave you, but man, you messed me up. We are to remember differently. Warren Wiersbe says, forgiveness means that we wipe the record clean and never hold things against people. We wipe the record clean. And we never hold anything against anyone. Let me ask you a question. Who are you holding things against? Who has a scorecard in your life? Where have you allowed resentment to eat away your heart? Where have you allowed that scorecard and that comparison of yours to theirs to take away your capability of loving them? Because I know that we have them. In our humanity, we want to keep score. We want to hold things against other people. Because we feel that we need to be justified when we're angry at them. We feel we need to be justified when we ignore them. We feel like we need to be justified when they hurt us. Because, you know what? A friend, if they hurt me, I'm just, they're out of my life. They wrote this on Facebook about me. And when I see them in public, I'm just going to pretend that they don't even exist. That's bitterness. That's resentfulness. That's not love. This selfless love does not exist in today's society. But it needs to be present in the church. It needs to be present in the church. If we are to be known as Christ's disciples, we are to love one another. And so when he says that, this ideal is what Jesus is talking about. Because if we can capture most of the heart of this, we're not always going to be perfect. I'm not always perfect. I don't always love. I find myself holding scorecards that then I need to release to God. 
Even while I was preparing for this, God was saying, oh, you have a scorecard. You need to, you need to give it away. But if we can capture the heart of this aspect of love, the world will know that we are his disciples. And this, this is about what we say about one another publicly. This is about how we treat one another publicly. This is how we pray for one another in private. We must release the keys of self. So may we be people who choose to love with self-sacrifice. May we be people who do not divorce letting go of our entitlement from our love. May we be people who throw away our scorecards and hold nothing against anyone, but simply choose to love no matter what. And may we choose to love one another so deeply that we seek to have each other's back in life so that we can protect our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our parents, our children from the attacks of the enemy. Because they're coming and they come, they always will come. We should be there for one another. May we use our gifts to lift others up and allow ourselves to fade away. That is when the church will be known by her love. Let's pray. Father, what you call us to is rarely easy. What you call us to is rarely a desire from our human flesh. But the spirit within us makes these words ring true. Your spirit within us gives us the capability and the capacity to love the way in which you've called us to love. I pray that we will today choose to hand over the keys to the kingdom of self and choose to love the way in which you have called us to love. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.